Hey, good morning, Watermark. My name is John Elmore and serve within pastoral care and regeneration. Y'all are kind. Y'all are kind. All right. That's kind. I don't know why Mickey left out incredibly good looking. That was, that seemed, I was waiting for it, but it never came. Uh, Y'all, I believe uh, every word that's written on every page, the, the words of this book and the author who wrote them saved my life, saved my life and changed it. And so it is my um, pleasure to get to proclaim it for the rest of my days because I believe and I know that what Jesus did for me, he will do for every single other person who calls upon his name because he says his promises are true and he's the same yesterday, today, and always. And so uh, that's my desire. Uh, I want to tell you about our, our house again. Um, so this is, this is uh, our, our house that we raised our three kids in, or we're still raising them, but um, it was the worst house, uh, the worst room in our house. It was the catch-all room. Maybe you have one of these. You probably have a catch-all closet. You don't tell anyone. We had a catch-all room. So it was like, because it was just me and Laura at this time. We didn't have kids. And so we had this, this bedroom that there was literally this horrible twin inflatable mattress on the floor, no bed frame. There were trash bags with just things stuffed in them. I don't even know what they were because it was, it was the catch-all room. They, they weren't even needed. It was this nasty, horrible room. It was the worst room. But then, Laura took a pregnancy test. And it went from the worst room to what I would say was the best room and the one that we gave the most attention to as it began to take shape and form. So a, a crib went in and the inflatable mattress went out. There was a dresser we got off Craigslist that I painted and we put a little changing table on top. There was the diaper pail, there were the blackout curtains so that nothing would wake those precious children. We had a phrase, you wake them, you take them. <laughs> and so the room took shape, it was formed, but it wasn't yet filled. Uh, there was a baby coming, but the baby wasn't yet there. And so there was the nursery that all three kids would be raised up in. And then the kids were born. And they were born and, and carried and cradled and, and read to in that room and changed as we, as we raised them and grew them up. But what they do is they ask stories. They're like, hey, tell us stories about when we were babies. Because they don't know. They, they were there, but they, they have no recollection of it. Uh, we had seared into our memories because we, it's like sleepless nights and, and all of that. And so they would say, tell us the stories of when we were babies. And we're like, well, there was the time, Hill, when you flipped yourself out of the crib, crawled to the door, and we're crying on the door, and Laura couldn't open it because you were on the other side like a doorstop. And so it was a standoff uh, with a baby and mom. And there was the time that Penny rolled off of the changing table, and because she was a girl, we never would have done it with the boys. We took her to the ER to make sure her head was okay. And, uh, and then Judd's like, tell me stories about when I was a baby. And we're like, oh, you were fun. We don't even remember when Judd was a baby because of the insomnia and sleepless nights. Like truly, we're like, dude, we don't even know. You just showed up and you were two. Like, I don't, I don't know. But, but the reason why I say that is because our kids long for that, even though they were there, but they don't remember. And in the same way, we do too. Stories are so formative in our lives as we retell them. They're so formative in our psyche, our soul as we long for this. And so this is what Moses was doing as he writes the first five books of the Bible, Genesis being the foremost, which is a, well, it, it's actually the, the phrase is Bereshit, which is Hebrew, in the beginning. Because he was a telling of people the story of who they were, what God did, 
where they were going. It was story. And here, as we walk into this Christmas season, we are telling the story, which is creation and fall, redemption, and ultimately restoration. And so this story is what we're going to tell. And the story, I want you to know, is doxological. It's all under the glory of God. This is not about us. It is about him and glory unto him, which is the Westminster Catechism, that we would give God glory as we enjoy him forever. And also it is very, accordingly, theocentric. It's not about man. It is about God, who is on a mission, having created man, to redeem man and will again create new heavens and new earth where we will live with him forever. Doxological, theocentric. But here we find ourselves, as the author has written this story, we find ourselves now in this story. He has written us into it and is doing an incredible thing. And I want you to know too, as we walk into uh, the story of creation, it's the first two chapters of Genesis. Just the first two chapters. And yet what you will find in the first two chapters is incredible amount of theology. So you have creation firmly established, which dispels all of evolution. You've got a mago day that all of mankind, all, were created in the image of God, meaning they have inherent morality. <clears throat> they have spirituality. They have an intellect. They have a volition, a will, being able to decide and a capacity for decisions. They were made in the image of God, Imago Dei. There's sanctity of life that's there within the first two chapters. There is missio Dei, which is the Latin term for the mission of God, as he says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, rule and subdue it, have dominion over all things. You have the definition of marriage, which as we know from our past series, that culture is doing its best effort to deconstruct, but right there from the outset, God says, this is marriage, and accordingly says, this is gender. The definitive word on gender right there in the first two chapters, and finally, monotheism. There is one true God. He created all, that all would know him. An amazing amount that is packed right there within the first two. He reveals himself in scriptures, not just that we would know, but that in our souls we would know him and be reconciled to him. So where do we begin? You would think we would begin in the beginning, that we would turn to page one and literally read in the beginning. But I wanna read a different in the beginning because in the beginning was not the beginning. As it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, which was a merism, meaning the totality of all that is seen from the earth to the heavens and everything in between. But that wasn't the beginning. Because in John 1, verse 1, we read this. And I'm going to replace the pronouns with the name of Jesus because I think there's so much power in it as we read it as such. In the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. Jesus was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Jesus. And without Jesus was not anything made that was made. Jesus made it all, Jesus upholds it all, it's all to the glory of Christ. And so you have the Father ordaining creation, the Son creating, the Spirit sustaining and restraining evil. All three working together, this triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always existed, eternally pre-existent. And there are three persons and there is one God. And this is the God that we worship. 
And so then you go to Colossians 1, 15 through 17, the Blake just read. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, the prototokos of all creation. Not that he was created, but that he is foremost, utmost, that he is the heir of all things, the firstborn of all creation. For by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created, listen to these prepositions, through Jesus and for Jesus. Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus, all things hold together. That was the beginning. God is. He was, is, and is to come. But even that does not lead us to the next in the beginning of Genesis 1. Because God did something else before he created the heavens and the earth. Which sounds kind of blasphemous, like, wait, that's what it says on the very first page. How can you say there was something before that? Because God does. And what you will hear right now is that what God did before an atom or molecule or anything, nanoparticle, was ever spoken into existence, he had you in mind. You. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. Even as he chose us in him, in Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, it was love motivating God, this creator God, it was his love for you. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. There's the doxological, the glory of God, which he has blessed us in the beloved. It was for our good, it was for his glory. And then at the back of the book, you've got Revelation 13, 8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, meaning the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. That the lamb's book of life that would contain every name of every soul that God would choose, elect, adopt, foreordained and ransomed and rescued in Jesus before the very first creative act of creation. He had you in mind. And so today, uh, if you were hoping to hear, but what about the dinosaurs? You'll be disappointed. If you were hoping to hear, what about the Yahwist and Eloist narrative in Genesis? You'll be disappointed. If you're wondering, are you young earth or old earth, you'll be disappointed. If you're wondering, was there a firmament above the waters when he separated the waters from the sky and made an expanse, you'll be disappointed. Though those things are, are technical and they have value and they do bring glory to God. Instead of going technical, I wanna go very, very personal. Because I think that's where life change will happen. Is not through knowledge, but for the transformative effect of God's word upon our lives. And so what I want you to see today is that as we talk about creation and Adam and Eve's story, I want you to see that Adam and Eve's story is your story. And that there are so many parallels and Christ types that every word either whispers or screams the name of Christ to the redemption of mankind. And so we're going to walk through these parallels today, seven of them. 
so that we don't like miss this. The creative order, you've got on the first day, he creates lights. The first is a summary statement. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's a summary statement. As I said, that merism, the totality of scripture. But then he gets into the particulars. And he says, on the first day, he created light, and it was good. On the second day, sky, and it was good. Then land, seas, and plants. He separates the waters from the land and brings forth plants on day three. Day four, the sun, moon, and stars. And you're like, wait, he already created light. What well, says in Revelation, there's going to be light emanating from Jesus, though there will be no more sun. Light is a creative act of God, but he puts the stars, moon, and sun and creates the seasons accordingly to them. And the fifth day, he creates the fish and the birds, which is actually an important notation. And then on sixth day, animals and mankind, the seventh day he rests. Another thing that you see in the first, um, first three days, as he forms the earth, much like we formed the nursery, uh, God goes by the name Elohim, which is sovereignty and transcendence and omnipotence. He's all powerful, Elohim. Then in chapter two, his name that he uses is Yahweh, which is eminent, he's personal to us individually as you get a very close, more granular look at the creation story and Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, as he walks and talks with Adam and Eve. So, with that in mind, here's where we're going through these themes and parallels. First, God brings order to chaos. God brings order to chaos. Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. There is uh, formless, there's void, and there's darkness. But there you have God hovering over the face of the deep. As I, as I read that, I thought about uh, Judd, our four-year-old. It was recently his birthday, and someone here from this body gave him a Lego set, and uh, we were gonna put it together, together, and he went for a different route. So I came down one morning, downstairs, and he had like on the island there, he had taken, I don't know if you're familiar with Legos these days, they have individual bags because they're very complex. So it's like bag one makes this part, bag two makes this part, bag three, and so on. He had taken every single bag and just emptied them, and I think mixed them onto the island. And he was already starting to like piece it together. And he's like, Dad, we're gonna build the toy. I'm like, oh. Oh no, like you just emptied out all the parts. Like this is total and sheer chaos. And I honestly was thinking about like just getting the trash can and being like, we're gonna get a new one. Cause it was just too much. I mean, it was like a 40 page instruction manual and he had emptied out every single piece. But he's like, we gotta build it. It was a Star Wars thing to make it more complex. It wasn't like primary colors. Everything was gray, off gray or, or half gray. I was like, awesome, thank you. But I was like, all right, we're gonna do this. <clears throat> and so I start with page one in the beginning. This is a big book, here we go. But he, with his dad beside him, uh, we created it. And guess what? That is his favorite toy right now. It's his favorite toy. We've got a picture of it, in fact. This is Judd, there's his toy, and he's so proud. He plays with it all the time. There's little doors that open. There's four stormtroopers that go inside. He loves it. It was worth every bit of all 12 hours that it took me to put that together. <laughs> I was like, I thought we were gonna build it together. He just like walks away. He's like, on his birthday. 
Here's the picture I decided not to show you. That's Penny. That's how I felt when he emptied the bags. Here's the thing about Legos. Legos crazy, right? Like, what an amazing concept. Everyone else creates finished toys and you pay money for them. Like, you go, you get a toy, there it is, it's finished. Legos are like, nah, we'll just give them the parts. Like, what's crazy that you build your own toy? But I think the reason why is because there's so much satisfaction in it. You're doing something together or you're achieving something. You're taking something that's formless and void and chaotic and then bringing it together. And when it's complete, you're like, oh, that's good. He literally loves that toy more than any other toy right now. And I think it's what God would have done because God could have created a finished world. It could have been done and complete, just like he did the animals. He didn't complete half animals. They were like done when he created the fish or the birds or the animals. They, they were just done. When he created the trees, they were done. They were already bearing fruit. But he doesn't with the world. Instead, it was formless, void, and darkness was over the deep because I think he wants us to see as we are as vice regents here on the earth when he says rule and subdue, he's giving us an example of bringing shape to things, bringing order to chaos. But he doesn't just do it with creation. He did it with us. He does it with us, even still. So 16 years ago, like if I could give you a snapshot of my life, I was living on a couch. I had two boxes of wrinkled clothes. I'd previously just put a gun to my head. I was an insomniac. I was losing my job. I'd stopped going to work. I was a drunk, an alcoholic. Formless, void, and darkness was over me. But it's in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that therefore if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. That Jesus is recreating, taking all the formlessness and void and the darkness, the spiritual darkness, and shaping and recreating, not making us better, but making us new. And taking all the broken pieces that we would give to him. And so, as I think about this, and, and some, you might be feeling like, yeah, but it sounds like your life turned out all right. Like I'm still living in the midst of a mess. Because I think some people in the room right now, you're like, Man, my, my life right now feels like somebody tore open all the bags and just emptied out the Lego pieces. And it's a mess. It's a wreck right now. I can't make any sense of all these broken pieces of cancer or divorce or sin struggles or loss or separation or whatever it may be. Just like, what is, what is this? But what I would tell you is that what you need to do is just entrust all those pieces to God, your Father, the one who promises to take all the broken pieces and he will make something of them. And it will be for your good and for his glory. He promises to do it, it's his job. So in Ephesians 1.11 it says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him. Listen who works all things, all your broken, lost mess of Lego pieces of life, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You give him those pieces and he will work them all in accordance of his will. Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. He will take those broken pieces, the lost pieces, the mismatched pieces, and he will make and reshape them into something amazing and beautiful. 
In John 21, 19, he's talking to Peter after Peter's betrayal. He's kind of reinstating him and sending him back off, telling him that he's forgiven him. And he says, Peter, later in life, people are gonna take you where you don't wanna go. They're gonna dress you in a way that you don't wanna be dressed. And John writes this. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. Church, that even in death, and some of you have lost loved ones, mothers, fathers, children, spouses, that even in death, even in the worst broken puzzle piece of them all, God will use it for your good, as difficult as that may be to understand, and for his glory, because he's redeeming all things. And right now we see this incomplete, but he's not done working. There's more to that instruction manual and he's gonna continue putting the pieces together because he's making something. And so I wanna tell you that your greatest pain is likely your greatest opportunity to glorify God. Your greatest pain is most likely your greatest opportunity to glorify God as you loosen that grip and entrust it to him and say, not my will, but your will be done. Secondly, God gives light. We're getting ready to go to Missouri for Thanksgiving and uh, as we're like driving around the neighborhood, I was like, something is wrong with your car or wrong with my eyes, I said to Laura, because I'm like, I can barely see, which is maybe the case with my eyes, but she was like, maybe it's the headlight. I'm like, it's not the headlight, get out of the car. Oh, it's the headlight. So I replaced the headlights in the car, why? Because we can't do anything apart from that light. Like we're not going to Missouri, other drivers can't see us, we can't see where we're going, we're gonna end up hitting a deer, we need light. And so God does give light, Genesis 1, three through four. And God said, let there be light. And there was light and God saw the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. This is um, what's called ex nihilo, a Latin statement, which means out of nothing. It's a divine fiat that God speaks and it is period, that he has that creative power, that creative order, that as he speaks, that ex nihilo, out of nothingness, that it just is because he is God. And then the parallel is that God gives light, general revelation to all. All of mankind can know that God exists by what has been created. This is Romans chapter one. It says, for what can be known about God is plain to them, the world, because God has made it shown to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since, we're talking about Genesis here, the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse, we are without excuse because we can look at everything and be like, well, how is there something rather than nothing? Why is there order rather than disorder? Why is there life rather than non-life? It's just inexplicable other than the fact of the eternal power and divine nature of God. And then there is light of the specific revelation of the gospel and salvific revelation to those whom he has chosen and adopted, those who have said yes and cried out, called upon the name of the Lord. First Peter 2, 9, here's that light. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Listen, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's called us out of darkness into the light. You see this parallel from Genesis separating the light from the darkness. Now he does it individually in our lives as he saves us that we might proclaim his excellencies to those who are still in darkness. 
Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. And I think so oftentimes, like those headlights, like I can see maybe 30 or 40 yards on low beams, I flip the high beams, maybe I get 50 yards at most. But what God says is, is that my word will be a light to your feet and a lamp to your path. Now in my life, I'm like, hey, why don't you give me a few miles of light? In fact, why don't you give me light to the horizon? Because there's some difficulties right now, like with Laurel walking through breast cancer or three children and all the different like scenarios that we're facing. I need a little more light, Lord. But I think what he knows in his sovereignty is that if we had too much light, we'd probably leave him. That he gives us just what we need in the moment to take the next step of faithfulness that we would walk near him. My kids on the way to Missouri for Thanksgiving, they were behind their father as I was projecting forth light. And so it is with us to just stay with our father and follow in his light. Third, God provides. He provides because he loves. Now, most of us went to some kind of place for Thanksgiving. And whenever you got to that place, or maybe you were the host, you provided because you loved or you were provided for because you were loved. And so when you showed up, there was turkey and stuffing and all these things. My parents, um, the first time when Laura and I were dating, they were like, hey, Laura, you're going to be coming for Thanksgiving. What are some of your favorite Thanksgiving meal? Because we want to have those items available. Do you like candied yams? Do you like whatever? She was like, actually, I don't really like Thanksgiving food. (laughs) They're like, "Like, what do do you do with that? And they're like, well, Sweetheart, what would, you, what, what would you like? And she said, well, I think on Thanksgiving you should eat things that you're thankful for. And they're like, okay, what, w- what would that be? And she's like, I, I mean, I, I like steak and like grilled asparagus. <laughs> so literally for the last 11 years, we have had steak for Thanksgiving dinner, which my parents love. They're like, that's amazing. We don't have to spend four hours to eat a half-cooked turkey and all the time with all the leftovers and the tryptophan food coma that you have afterwards. Like, we're just like throw some steaks. My dad throws steaks on the grill. 15 minutes later, we're eating a good hot dinner. Now, some of you think that's blasphemy. (laughs) I think it's amazing. My whole family's adopted it uh, as we have that. But this is what God does for us. He provided for us some of his first creative acts. Before man was even on the scene, he provides. Listen to this. Genesis 1.11. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seeds, and fruit trees bearing fruit. Which, I mean, you've got to have like the heavenly host looking at this like, why are you making fruit, God? What, that's just going to fall to the ground and rot. And he's like, nah, I'm not done yet. Somebody's coming to dinner. And I love them. I've written them in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. They're about to come on the scene. And when they come, I want them to be provided for because I love them. It's what he does for us. So on day three, he creates the food that man would eat as he's created on day six. And on day six, think about this. He creates the animal that would be slain for the covering after the day of sin when Adam and Eve take of the fruit that they shouldn't have. He creates even the animal that the people would eventually need for their covering, Adam and Eve, as they sin. He provides because he loves, and so it was with us. So the eternally begotten Son The lamb who was slain was prepared beforehand for us. It says in Isaiah 53, before the son has even taken on flesh, yet it was the Lord, the will of the Lord to crush him, to put him to grief. When his soul, Jesus, makes an offering for guilt, 
He shall see his offspring. So wait, I thought he was a guilt offering, meaning he was dead, but now he's gonna see his offspring? How is that? Because he's gonna be raised from the dead. Here you have pregnant within this verse, the resurrection. He'll see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, Jesus, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Continues on, the lamb provided before the people would even need him. The God foreordained, I will send the Messiah, the rescuer, the ransom for their souls. The Lamb's book of life. Fourth, God gives life. God gives life. In Genesis 1:27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. There you have Imago Dei, you have gender, and specifically, he breathes life into Adam. And then from Adam, takes an Eve, and, takes an Eve, takes a rib and shapes Eve. This creative way that God specifically gives life to mankind, uniquely from the others. And so it is with us. God gives life there to Adam and Eve, but he gives life to us. Because spiritually, it says that we were dead. It says in scripture that we are uh, naturally or physically alive as we are born, but spiritually dead. This was Nicodemus's confusion when Jesus says, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus is like, what are you talking about? I'm already alive. How can I be born again? Will the man yet enter his mother's womb again? He didn't understand. And Jesus was saying, Nicodemus, you're physically alive. You're spiritually dead. You're a dead in your sin Pharisee. And so it was for every single one of us. And so here in Ephesians 2, verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, this is Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It jumps to verse 5. It says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. There is a spiritual resurrection, dead in our sin, and he makes us alive. God gives life. And fifth, God gives a helper. We know this. We talk about it a lot, that Eve was Adam's helper that he created. Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper suitable or fit for him. This is an interesting exchange here. So God is saying he creates um, the heavens and the earth. He creates light, it was good. He creates the sky, it was good. He creates the land from the seas and the plants, it was good. He creates the fish and the birds, it was good. Then he gets to this part and he says, it's not good. It's not good. And, and that seems strange too, like, well, how could God do anything that's not good? Like, he doesn't seen sin, he doesn't create error. So how could it, how could it be not good? It's not that it wasn't good, it's that it wasn't complete. Not, not good in the sense of bad, it was not good in the sense of incomplete, he wasn't finished. Like the formless and void, he was still creating. And so God is saying, it's not good that man be alone. And this is used for a wedding verse. A lot of times you'll hear this quoted like, it's not good, so man created a suitable helper, and here you guys are getting married, she's your helper, uh, this is good. You know, now you're complete. In which the single people in the room are probably like, well, man, that stinks. So that means, that was just married people who laughed probably. 
Single people are like, yeah, it's still not funny. Uh, like, does that mean it's not good for me and my singleness? Like, not good? Really? Is that upon me? Like, I'm already maybe wrestling with that? It's not the case. It's not the case, my brothers and sisters, who either don't desire marriage or do and are not yet married. It's not the case. Because Scripture would never contradict Scripture. <clears throat> and in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul writes that he wishes that all were like him, being single. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. Now the single people are going to laugh. It's like when you're married, you got anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord. He kind of flips it. He's like, you're, you're concerned or worried about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious, and he shouldn't be, about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord. He's saying that the single people, they're concerned about the Lord and his holiness and how to serve him. He goes on to say, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So it can't be not good in the sense of bad, because here Paul says, no, it's a good thing, because there's undivided devotion to the Lord, and you're not anxious about how to please your spouse. And I was reading in the Bible, recently I was going through Isaiah, and I got to Isaiah 56, and I wrote in big letters, for singles. It's this beautiful, powerful passage and promise. Listen to this. For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who are like, think Old Testament in Babylon singles, who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them, I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial, listen, and a name better than sons and daughters. Better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. It says also in Psalm 33:20 that God is our helper. The same word, it's E-Z-E-R, a Hebrew word for help or helper. It says that God also, the same that Eve was, God is our help or helper. So it can't mean subservient. So some of you husbands are thinking like, well, you're my helper and I'm the leader and you are the spiritual leader of the house, but it's not that she is subservient to you. She's not below you. She's equal to you, which is why Hebrew scholars back in the day would say she was taken from your side, not from your feet. You were not above her. But that she is a helper like God is. Well, certainly God is not subservient, but God is helping us accomplish his will, leading us into his will as we co-lever together. On the inside of our wedding rings, Laura had inscribed, walking, here's to walking home together. It's this side-by-side journey. God mandates, be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. Genesis 1.28, it says, and God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish and sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so from the garden to the globe, from the population of two to now eight billion, be fruitful and multiply. But, but you don't see much past the garden that they gather together at the Tower of Babel and they're like, no, we're not, we're not gonna be fruitful and multiply. We're gonna stay right here. We're gonna build a tower to glorify us instead of you because we don't need you and we don't want you and we're not gonna, we're not gonna follow the missio day, the mission of God to be fruitful and multiply. We're gonna stay right here because we don't need to do that. It would be better if we remain here. And as I read that, I thought about the parallel that I think we're more concerned often about our occupation than we are about others' salvation. 
Because the parallel, as God said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. He says to us as the church, as Jesus, having resurrected, gives the great commission to the church that is echoed through 2,000 years. He's saying be fruitful and multiply. As he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, because behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. But I think we've kind of stopped and we've melt our own little tower of Babel and we're like, I don't want to disciple all nations, actually. I'd rather build my house, build my career, build my retirement account. I don't want to be about that, God. I don't want to be fruitful, meaning be full of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. He's the one that bears the fruit for us. And as far as multiplication, I'd like to see my account multiply rather than my discipleship. And I think we need to return to that of God's divine mandate to be fruitful and multiply. Your job is not your calling, God is. And then lastly, God gives instruction. I'll say to our kids um, various things, the Regen team laughs about it all the time. I'll tell my kids, if you do that, you will die. Which sounds kind of like Garden of Eden stuff, like don't partake of the fruit of the tree of good and evil, because in the day that you do, you will surely die, which is the instruction that he gives them in Genesis 2, 15 and 17. He's like, you do that, you'll die which they didn't drop dead in the moment, in which my kids won't. Like if I say, hey, don't get by the edge of the pool because if you fall in, you'll die. Well, they may or may not, but I'm not up for rolling the dice, especially with our four-year-old. And so I say, don't get near the edge of the pool because if you fall in, you will die. These are instructions to keep him from harm and to give him life. There are things we do tell them to do that promote life. You know, you need to take your vitamins. You need to get outside and exercise. You need to do these things that promote life and also things that keep them from death, that give good instruction. And so God does for us in this word. Jesus says, as he's praying for us, great priestly prayer. In John 17, he says, he's praying to the Father, sanctify them, meaning shape them into my image by truth. And then he says, your word is truth that God has given to the church good instructions to keep us, to hold us back from death and to promote and further good, that we would live a good, holy and pleasing life as a living sacrifice unto God, these good instructions that he has given us. And that is the creation story. And the story also of how you can be a new creation in Christ, just as formless and void or with those broken Lego pieces that entrusting them to a father. But there's one other thing that happens in the creation account. It's so interesting that on day seven, God rests. He rests, but not because he was tired. He rests to model for us rest. He rest because it was complete and it was good. And so he modeled for us this example of rest. It was Laura's birthday on the 26th. And as you remember, the, uh, the nursery that we prepared for the kids, you know what I gave her for her birthday? I gave her rest because she's been raising those kids, changing diapers, taking care of them, discipling them. Our kids, whenever they shared words of encouragement for her birthday, you know what they shared? They were like, mom, thank you for the chores you do. Because they see her doing laundry and cleaning and preparing meals and getting their backpacks ready for school. They see what she is doing. And so for her birthday, I took the kids on a hike and got them off to a playground and we just gave mom some rest before we took her to dinner. 
But conversely, God's like, no, I don't, I don't need rest. He rested on that seventh day for us as an example for us, but get a load of this. Like, this is amazing. From the seventh day, he has not rested ever since. He has not rested since the seventh day. According to scripture, and it begs the question, why? Like, what have you been doing? Because you, you're not creating the worlds anymore, so what is it you're doing? He is rescuing and ransoming souls all day, every day, listening to the cries of people, sustaining life, putting together all the Lego pieces of your life, providing for you, sustaining you, restraining evil from you, providentially at work in your life, rescuing souls on this earth every single day since the seventh day for thousands and thousands of years. Because Jesus says in John 5, 17, as they question him, why are you doing these things on the Sabbath? He says, my father is always at work. And therefore, I am too. And church always means always. So you take those broken pieces and you entrust them to a father who's got a good manual to give you good and bring glory to him. And you just wait and you listen to the words of Psalm 121 where they say, where does my help come from? It was a rhetorical question. I'll tell you where my help comes from. My help comes from the Lord who neither sleeps nor slumbers. He's never slept, never rested all day, every day, eyes upon his children, looking throughout the earth, ransoming and saving. And then you have Psalm 8 that we sung earlier that we'll end with. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, he's looking, David's looking at all of creation just in wonder and awe, and then he says, what is man that you are mindful of me? In the grandeur, in awe, and complexity, in order, and specific design, and all of it set in swirling motion, yet never colliding, is like, and then there's me. And you're mindful of me. And he is for you. Every single one of you. He knows you. He loves you. And he will walk with you all of his days, of your days. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you are amazing. You're amazing in what you have done and how you have put it to story that we might know that thousands of years ago you created, but before you created, you penned our names for those who have trusted in Jesus into the Lamb's book of life your first creative act was to think of us and that you would rescue us, that you would create us, sustain us, and ransom us. We thank you, Lord, that for those who have trusted in the provision of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, we are yours, and that you were mindful. In Jesus' name, amen.